Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens. And my time capsule, as ever, is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. Four things that they cherish and one thing they'd like to forget. My guest in this episode is Professor Turi King, who led the DNA verification during the exhumation and reburial of Richard III of England, using the DNA from a living relative of Richard III. Turi presents, alongside Stacey Dooley, the BBC Two genealogy series, DNA Family Secrets. Turi was born in England, but moved to Canada early in her life. She studied at the University of British Columbia, then Jesus College, Cambridge, doing her master's at the University of Leicester. Her work has included tracing the signal of the Viking migration to the north of England and involves combinations of molecular genetics with history, forensics, archaeology, geography and genetic genealogy. But I'll let her explain it all. Turi presents the BBC Radio 4 documentary Genetics and the Longer Arm of the Law. She advises on numerous television programmes and provides genetic expertise to a number of famous crime writers, including Patricia Cornwall. Turi's about to embark on a tour of theatres around the country, and I'm sure once you've listened to this fascinating woman here, you'll be searching her out. So here is my very impressive guest, Professor Turi King. The school has run out of water. Oh, goodness. I know. <laughs> Thanks to Boris Johnson. I think we should blame him for everything these days. I, me too. <laughs> I'm perfectly happy to do that. Well, yeah. you'll know as a person that uh, you've relied entirely on all sorts of different areas to get you where you are. Absolutely. Particularly, it seems, and you share this with my wife. She's a welcome student as well. She's, she was Is part she? of the Welcome Trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So her PhD was funded by Welcome. 
who are fantastic. Oh, the Wellcome Trusts are amazing. And they have a really broad reach of what they fund, everything from sort of medical humanities through to sort of really hardcore sort of genetics. So what did she do her PhD in? Do you know, I have the faintest idea. <laughs> That's, she's tried to explain it to me over and over again. Yeah. She said, do you want to read my PhD? And I went, oh, okay, because she spent ages working on it. And it was yeah. incredibly complicated. And as you know, unique work. It, yeah. Nobody else had ever done it. So you think, well, yes, she deserves this. And I tried to read the title, and it had the word Fapsigargin in it. So first of all, I had to look that up. I had to look the title up. I would have to look that up. <laughs> I wrote one down. Uh, as a welcome scholar, she published a paper which is entitled, and this is just the title. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> Divergent requirements of the Mapkirk signal transduction pathway during initial virus infection of quiescent primary B cells and disruption of Epstein-Barr virus latency by forbal esters. Wow. Mm -hmm. but that's quite cool I mean yeah it's full-on biochemistry absolutely that's the really cool thing about biochemistry because you're often looking at shapes of molecules and things like that and trying to develop something that specifically fits that like a puzzle piece yeah it's such cool stuff I mean the stuff they can do these days is just amazing isn't it just it's incredible so I mean going back to my point that there's been such poor funding of the whole thing by this country I think recently yeah and it's not looking good at the moment. I mean, and it's a, it's a real shame that science isn't being funded as it was because we are losing people to mm -hmm. it. People leave and they go overseas to where there is better funding. So we lose people. Yeah. Yeah, quite. Well, uh, you must be very proud to have got where you've got. Uh yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things that um, I've been flying by the seat of my pants, really. <laughs> People sometimes think there's like a real plant. There isn't. It's no. just you take the opportunities when they come to you, I yeah. think, is what happens. And one of the things that I will put in my time capsule will be the Richard III project because of course it was the right place. I was in the right place, the right time, the right background, and it was offered to me and I and I I thought, yeah, I'd love to be involved in this. Of course I'd been told we would never find Richard the <laughs> Third. So I mean that was that was part of it. But I mean it, it was it was something where, yeah, of course I'd love to be involved in something like this. Well, let's look at it. Let's examine the things that you want to put into a time capsule and see where they lead us. Okay. So what's the first thing? So I thought the first thing I'd like to put into my time capsule is actually a beach in Vancouver. <laughs> ah. I waver as to which beach it might be, but I grew up in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. I was born in Nottingham, and my parents emigrated to Canada when I was just a few weeks old. And I think like most people here at the time, so my mom was a nurse and my dad was an engineer, and they kind of thought, well, we'll go over to Canada, and we'll stay there two or three years, and then we'll come back. Huh. And of course, they never did. No. <laughs> I mean, they ended up just staying out there. And we lived we lived near Toronto until I was about seven. Mm -hmm. And then my dad saw this advertisement to go and work for BC Hydro, British Columbia Hydro, mm -hmm. so hydroelectric engineer. And we ended up moving across the country to Vancouver. Huge country. Huge country. Huge. It's like going to the other side of the world almost, isn't it, really? Yeah. I mean, there are parts of Canada that are closer to Britain than they are to the rest of Canada. It's a nice <laughs> little fact. I can't, you can, it is, it's that massive. Mm. And I remember being a seven-year-old and we took the train across the country. So it was, you know, four days traveling across the country. And I remember, you know, the prairies and things like that. I mean, it really is the most amazingly 
beautiful country. Mm. And we ended up in Vancouver, which of course I think is the most beautiful city on earth. And I grew up there, mm. growing up, I suppose, on the beach. <laughs> Tough. <laughs> really bad, right? <laughs> And whenever I go back, one of the first things they would do is take me to the beach. And I just kind of grew up there. There's an amazing ice cream place called Marble Slab um, <laughs> off the back of one of the beaches. And you can kind of build your own ice cream cone and just go and sit and watch the sunset. Wonderful. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. It's one of these places where you can go hiking during the day and you can go sailing. And we've got this kind of saying in Vancouver where it's like you can go, you know, skiing in the morning and sailing in the afternoon and you can go to the opera in the evening. It's that mm. kind of place and really multicultural. So I, I really grew up with this really multicultural background. Mm. You know, my the the kids I was at school with were from all over the world. And it was really such an education, I think, growing up there. Yes. It's strange being so sort of English-centric. See, if you say to me Canada, I think snow. Yeah. <laughs> I picture deep, deep snow. Yeah. And you do get that. I mean, we don't get that so much in Vancouver, but up in the mountains behind Vancouver, you can go skiing. And where my mom lives now, which is up in the interior of BC, they go down to like minus 20 and they get <laughs> oh. tons of snow. And you're just like, But equally in the summers, you know, fully expecting we might have to be worried about forest fires mm -hmm. because the temperatures of my dad was saying where he lives up on the Sunshine Coast now, they haven't had any rain for over a month. They have water shortages, yeah. and it's just been solid sunshine for weeks and will be probably till the end of the summer. So it's true. When I first got to this country, people would go, oh, you're from Canada. Do you live in igloos type thing? <laughs> <laughs> and have husky dogs. It's like, no, no, we don't. <laughs> but I mean, one of the things that I really loved about growing up in Vancouver, so it's it's this amazing place, loads of nature. I went to a, a slightly unusual school in that it was called the mini school. Mm -hmm. And it was something that you could go to from the age of 11. So you kind of finish elementary school. And then from the age of 11, you could apply, you know, you go to high school or you could go to these schools known as the mini school. And there's a, there's a few of them around. And they're essentially where they kind of, for academically able kids, they think, well, can we do stuff kind of outside the normal curriculum. So you would go camping and orienteering and skiing and, and this kind of thing. So I got this really lovely education that mm. was slightly out of the norm. We would go canoeing and, and all this kind of stuff. So you have this amazing nature around you. And I suppose that was part of what they wanted the education to be yes. outside the classroom. We seem to have a strange view here that if you're not sitting at a desk studying something, you're not learning. And actually, mm. you learn in all situations, don't you? And in fact, you may be more memorable to be in a canoe and learn something than to be sitting at a desk. Yeah. And I think people learn in different ways, yeah. don't they? So there's this idea of, you know, being smart. Oh, well, you must be really, really good at school. But there's different kinds of smart, mm -hmm. I think. And so people excel at different things. So, I mean, I have four children and they're all going off in completely different directions based on their own personalities and what they're good at and what they enjoy and things like that. And I think it's really important to really nurture that. Mm. And I suppose because teaching at, at university, and often I have students who are kind of my personal two Ts, mm. and for some of them, boy, are they in the right place. And they they love it and they love what they're doing and this is great. And But for some, you can tell, I think maybe it's because an expectation that they would go to university, but they're not happy. Yes. And you think... 
this is costing you a lot of money. <laughs> Would you not be happier getting a job in an area that you really like or that you're interested in? So I do think that there's various ways to learn and various paths to take in life. And academia is it's the one I've gone down, but it's not for everybody. Because I had done fairly well at high school. I then got a scholarship and I started at University of British Columbia. And I thought, I'm going to be a medic. And in Canada, you have to do a degree and then you go to medical school. And I did Calculus 101 in my first term <laughs> with a friend of mine, Scott. And we hated it. I mean, hated it. I, <laughs> I just scraped through. And I just thought, oh, God, I'm not doing any more of that. So he and I were sitting there in Indiana Jones. One of the movies had recently come out. Mm. And we thought, yeah, let's do Archaeology 101. <laughs> so I so ended up doing that. And then I loved it. Mm. And I, I fell into it. And I, I was really lucky because I talked to my, my profs and I said, look, can I do some extra courses? So they let me go on the field school a year, two years early. Um, I got to go and volunteer on excavations. And that was, again, a real education because... Obviously, the land that we are excavating on is First Nations land. Mm. So these are things like shell middens. This is land that is, you know, used to belong to these First Nations. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is we're excavating their past. Yeah. And they have a different view on things. So for them, ancestors are incredibly important. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're excavating human remains that are a thousand years old and you, you don't really know who they are and you know they're, they're from, from your culture and this kind of thing, but you don't necessarily feel a deep personal connection to them. You just think, oh, ancient human remains. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But for them, that is a really, really big deal. These are their ancestors. And so it was learning about people's different beliefs and, and how this is important to people and how it's really important to be including them as part of the process and the permissions to be able to go and do this sort of work. And that was a real education mm. for me. And I think about understanding the importance of including people. It's something which has become very much a part of my field now, Yes, where we are looking at DNA from ancient human remains and making sure that we are involving communities, ideally having them be sci community scientists from these communities doing the work, I think is really, really important. In a way, your career has followed the path of the growth of the understanding of DNA. And as every step has been made, you've been there to watch it and in a way to utilize it. <laughs> Oh, I was super duper lucky. So I, I left university after a couple of years. So in Canada, you can do it in a module form. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, okay, let, let, let's go traveling. And so I ended up coming to this country. I'd been working on a dig in Greece. I'd been working as a waitress in a... In a cocktail bar? No. no, no. <laughs> Nearly. In a little coaching inn in Dorchester on Thames. <laughs> and it was lovely. I mean, you know, I was staying with my godmum, who's amazing, my auntie Umi. And then I started volunteering at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. And I thought, well, I really better finish my degree. If it's if I go home, it's two years. Mm. If I stay here, it's three years. So I'll apply to Cambridge on a bit of a whim because the people whose textbooks I had been reading in Canada doing archaeology, they were teaching in Cambridge. <laughs> and so I thought, I'll apply. And I ended up getting in. So I was doing arc and anth, and I ended up specialized in biological anthropology. So this is like evolution. And we did have somebody teaching about genetics. Mm. And it was the Romanoff case. 
So this is our Nicholas and his wife and their their children mm-hmm. killed in the Bolshevik Revolution. Remains are found in the 1990s, and they use a combination of archaeology and genetics and osteology and whatever to identify those remains. And I thought that's what I want to do. So I <laughs> I talked to this the this Erica Hegelberg who was teaching us at the time, and I said, look, I I, I think I need to get a molecular genetics degree. This is what I want to do. And she said, well, actually, don't stay at Cambridge. The best place to go is the University of Leicester. Sir Alec Jeffries is there, the chap who invented DNA fingerprinting. So I went up and did my master's and and later a, a PhD. And Professor Sir Alec Jeffries was on my PhD uh, panel. Wow. I know. <laughs> how lucky. <laughs> That's I amazing. Mean, how, how ridiculously lucky have I been <laughs> to have this individual on my PhD panel. And he is an incredibly generous scientist, mm. really amazing person. And you would never know in a million years that he's invented something so huge. No. Changed the world. He still hasn't got a Nobel Prize, and that's one of my like little bugbears, because you kind of think, are you kidding me? But it's one of those things you kind of think, he, he invented something which changed the world. Changed the world, without doubt. And will continue to change the world to the point where mm. I think that actually you look at the development of genetics and DNA profiling, I think that not far away, there will come a time where it will be impossible to commit a crime and get away with it. It is becoming impossible. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's put that gorgeous beach. And I can picture it because the idea of going for a walk on the beach, you immediately visualize this huge, sweeping, open area with the waves rolling in. Yeah. And, of course, the ice cream parlour tucked away at the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And and got married on the beach. Oh, really? I mean, it, that's how much it has meant to me. This one place has been so much a part of my childhood mm. and kind of who I am. Mm. Like, I thought, well, this is a bit of a no-brainer. That's one to go in. Wonderful. <laughs> All right, that's the first thing. We'll make sure that's in, because that's important. Okay, so let's move on to number two and see where that goes. So number two is the Richard III Project. Mm. And that, again, was luck. So I have this unusual background in that I started in archaeology and then moved into genetics. Mm -hmm. And I got this email from a chap called Richard Buckley, who was the co-director of University of Leicester Archaeological Services. And this was back in early summer 2011. And essentially it said, I understand that you have this unusual background. You know, you've done archaeology and now you do DNA work. And um, we're going to be doing this excavation. It's in downtown Leicester and it's looking for the remains of somebody who's quite famous. Mm. And I can't tell you who it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote back going... Is it Richard Third? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the reason why I knew that was because when I first arrived in this country, my beloved Auntie Lynn, who I'm happy to say lived long enough to see this happen. She took me to the Bosworth Battlefield. It was one of the first things I ever did when I got right. to this country, was she took me to the Bosworth Battlefield where Richard III was killed at mm-hmm. the Battle of Bosworth. And she lent me a couple of books on Richard III. And so when this email comes in, I go right back and, is this Richard? And Richard Buckley writes back going, yes, it is, but don't tell anybody and don't worry, we are never going to find him. It'll be half a day of your time maximum. <laughs> but it was basically, it was it was a project which was kicked off by a lady called Philippa Langley. Mm-hmm. 
who was the secretary of the Scottish branch of the Richard III Society. And she had had rung up and spoken to Richard Buckley. And he kind of got off the phone thinking, well, we'll never find Richard, but this will be a really interesting project because it's, I mean, he was the person to talk to. He's been excavating in downtown Leicester for over 30 years. Mm. He, in the 1980s, had done a really detailed map of medieval Leicester, which had friaries and things on it. So Richard III, known to have been killed at the Battle of Bosworth, we know from the historical documentation that he's buried in the choir of the Church of the Greyfriars. And he'd done this map in the 80s. And so, you know, you couldn't have come to a better person. No. And he spoke to a chap called Richard Taylor, who was our, um, well, he's, he was our deputy registrar. And he also was really interested in Richard III. So out of his budget, he put money in. So Philippa came up and talked to him. He said, look, yes, we'll put money in. The university will put in money in. You will have access to our, you know, our staff. You know, he, she wanted somebody who could do the DNA. So I remember talking to her way back in 2011 about, well, if this happens, what we'll do is this, that. And the other thing was talking through all the genetic stuff. So he essentially, Richard Taylor, pledged our time, money from the university, and it was great because Leicester City Council came on board. They put in money, which the university then underwrote. Other people put in money, but then pulled out at one point. So then Philippa then did a kind of a big whip round and got more money to put in. So eventually what happened was the university paid for the majority of the excavation mm. and then said, look, we'll pay for all the post-excavation work as well. Wow. I know. So <laughs> here's me ready to go. So we we actually didn't start until... August 2012. So the we sort of break ground on the 25th of August 2012, which is supposed to be about 527 years to the day when Richard is thought to have been buried there. Oh. So we know a bit about what's happened. Yeah. So we know he's been killed in battle. He's brought back to Leicester. He's laid out in a church in the city, essentially, so people can go, yep, that's Richard III. He's actually dead. Mm-hmm. And then he's taken and he's buried in the choir of the Church of the Greyfriars. There's a load of historical documentation that says this. And there was this rumor that he had been thrown into the local river. So there's a chap called John Speed. He's a cartographer. He's a historian. He's he's writing in the 1600s, and he talks about how Richards has been dug up during the dissolution of the monasteries and thrown into the local river. Right. But we don't know if John Speed even actually came to the city. We don't know where this is coming from. There's a, a local, the mayor at the time had bought the land the friar was on, and he seems to think that Richard's still buried there, and he's local, he would have known. So, and there'd been a lot of stuff that said, we don't think this rumor is actually true. No. So, we already knew he's likely to be in whatever's left of the friary in downtown Leicester, which is now covered by car parks and buildings. Mm-hmm. So... Richard Buckley, what he's deciding to do is like, right, okay, so we know that the main walls of Friaries run east-west. So if you run two long, thin trenches down the kind of central car park where we can actually excavate because we can't excavate in all of the places, then hopefully we'll cross some of those main walls and we'll start to work out where we are. Mm. So there, I know there was this big thing on, on he's not under the R. I, I right. really feel like a buddy he wasn't. No. So we were joking. It was the first day of the excavation, and some of us at the archaeologists were like, "Yeah, R marks the spot. He'll be right under there." You know, it's like it's like Indiana Jones, right? X marks the spot. He's not. No. So we, we thought we'll go straight down. He wasn't. He was about five meters away. It was underneath the car park space kept for the man who worked at M and S. Yeah, his name was Richard, and the space was number three. 
That's what it was. <laughs> but it, I mean, it was amazing because, you know, we know six hours, 34 minutes in, we hit a little bit of leg bone. Brilliant. But you cannot, ex- so there's whole kinds of ethical stuff that comes in here. So it had already been budgeted for that we would excavate up to six sets of remains. Mm. You're not going to do the first six that you find. You have to get a license from the Ministry of Justice. So, you know, we have to go through all of this and you have to make educated decisions and ethical decisions mm-hmm. about which skeletons you're going to excavate. And at the moment, we don't know where we are because we've literally just started opening the trenches. We don't know if we're inside church, outside church. We could be anywhere. So what we do is we keep excavating because with that, if we can start to cross walls, we can start to make a map yes. of where we are. And then we might start to home in on skeletons that look like they might be in the choir. And that's precisely what happens. So after about two weeks of excavating, the archaeologists have managed to work out. I mean, archaeology is not... You, you need experience doing this. And it's really complex archaeology in Leicester. Mm. So this is all soil changes and understanding what you're looking at. So the archaeologists bring a real skill to this. Mm. And after a while, they've worked out, okay, this is where we think we are. We've opened up a third trench where we think that, um, you know, the church could be down end this end. And we realize that where that skeleton is that we found on the very first day, which we've never uncovered, we've left it covered, that's down at one end of the choir, Let's make that one of our six. Ethically, Mm -hmm. we can justify that. So we start to uncover it. So this is Joe Appleby, who's our osteologist and I, and we're excavating. And we got up to about his hips. We're doing his legs. He's missing the ends of his legs. We've got up to about getting up towards his his kind of pelvis area. And then we realized we're not going to be able to lift these remains in time. We're not going to get it excavated. We don't want to leave it uncovered overnight. I've got to go to a conference the next day, so Joe will finish excavating. And I'm joking. I'm not going to miss anything. That's going to be a 90-year-old friar who lived a nice long life and died in his bed. I can't tell. I mean, I, you know, I, you can't tell looking at a skeleton just at this little bit how old this is, but I'm joking. And I'm just going, oh, you know, I won't miss anything. So the next day I landed in Innsbruck, which is where I was at a forensics conference. And I texted Joe to go, how's our 90-year-old friar? And she texts back going, youngish male battle injuries, hunchback. Oh. <laughs> you know, so at the time, he's in the ground. She can't tell if it's a sideways curve or, or a, you know, or kyphosis or scoliosis. Kyphosis is the kind of forward curve. Mm. Scoliosis, sideways curve. Joe will tell you the hair on the back of her neck went up because she had been, so she'd come down on the head and the head was in a really, really unusual position. So the way Richard is placed is almost like he's in a bath. It's like they've buried him. The, the archaeologists call it minimal reverence. So it's not a nice 90-degree side square. It's almost sort of bath-shaped grave, as if they've kind of placed him there possibly in a bit of a hurry. Right. So we found his legs, because that's what we found in the very first instance. And so, you know, Joe's trying to come down to get to his head, and she's got, you know, she's digging around, finally finds his head, and it's very high up. Mm. And what she's trying to do then is work from the pelvis up to the head in a straight line to follow the spinal column. Yeah. And she's following the vertebrae up and she's excavating. She's doing that. And then she can't find one. And so she kind of goes off to one side and it's the vertebrae is off to one side. Oh. And then the next one, and then the next one, she said the hair on the back of her neck went up because she realized. Oh, my God. Because already she'd seen the head. It had what looked like perimortem injuries. So this mm-hmm. is where at or around the time of death. and. 
they could be battle injuries. So he's got a huge chunk missing from the base of his skull, for example. And but she's going, okay, look, I'm not going to get really excited here. I'm, you know, very calm. Uh, maybe this is a friar who left, you know, had a nasty end. It's not him. But it was that bit. Richard is painted by Shakespeare as being a bunchback toad, you know, with a withered arm and a limp. And But Shakespeare's writing over 100 years later. He's not going to say Richard III was lovely and he was no. great with kids and we <laughs> killed him. <laughs> They're going to say he's horrible. <laughs> yeah, deserved so, to die. He deserved to die. So it was that moment, she says, that the hair on the back of her neck went up. I was in Innsbruck going, oh my goodness, you're kidding me. So the first thing I did was I rang Philippa. Because I knew she would be at the side of the trench, and I knew that this would be really big for her. And I was like, how are you doing? And you could tell she was just just slightly, slightly spaced out, understandably, because this is something she's been wanting to do all this time. <sighs> this huge team have come together, and we find these remains. And I then I rang Matthew and was like, this, this is it, isn't it? He's like, yeah, it really, really, it, does, it looks like him. Amazing. Amazing. Absolutely so, astonishing. Yeah. <laughs> and so there I am at this forensics conference in Innsbruck with some of the biggest names in, in forensics, and I cannot tell a soul. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> was, oh, you're kidding me. So I, it was flying back and then taking samples, so DNA from, so wiggling Richard's tooth out of his mandible <sighs> to take away for DNA analysis. I mean, so nerve-wracking because you don't want to damage anything. And, you know, it's not like you can go in with pliers and you've got to have to be the full CSI kit on because mm. ancient DNA is very damaged. Yeah. Um, there's not much of it. It's very damaged if there is anything left at all. So if you breathe on the remains and touch them, you're putting your DNA all over it and you're contaminating it. So you've got the full CSI gear and the face mask and hairnet and all that kind of stuff. So it was really, really nerve-wracking process. And and then obviously we did a press conference. So Philippa and I and Richard Taylor, Joe was there, Richard Buckley, saying, look, we found these remains. Now the hard work starts because we have to identify him. Yes. We have to find a relative. And actually one already existed. One We knew about one. Oh, right. Yeah. So this is a lovely chap called Michael Ibsen, who's Canadian like me. And he already knew. And the reason why he knew was actually his family tree was published in the Rouveny Roll. So 1907, most of his tree is is published in the Rouveny Roll. But then a chap called John Ashdown Hill from Richard III Society had traced down these last few generations and found a woman called Joy Ibsen, who was living in Canada. And there's a really specific relationship here that I needed to be able to do the genetic analysis. And that's because the vast majority of the DNA that we've got it's from, you know, just some of our many, many thousands of ancestors. We're a real mixture of DNA from our ancestors. And I can't just use anybody to do this DNA analysis. I need somebody who's related in a particular way. And that's because we've got two pieces of our DNA that are passed down through the generations in a really simple way. So right. they're passed down virtually unchanged. They get little mutations as they go. But one is mitochondrial DNA, and that's in the egg. Mm -hmm. So us gals, we pass it down to all of our children, but only daughters pass it on. So Richard would have got it from his mom, Cecily, who then passed it down to any daughters that she had, who had daughters, who had daughters down through the generations till you get to Michael. Wow. Yeah, and lovely. So Joy has sadly passed away. Michael is working as a cabinet maker in London. And he's there on the on the very first day when we're doing the press conference. And I sidle up to him and go, look, even if we don't find any remains, I'll I'll do some of your DNA for you. Just 
just for you, just for mm. fun. Mm. Um, so he gave me a DNA sample. And the real issue, though, was that nowhere was it published that this tree was correct. So what you need to do is you need to publish all of the documentary evidence to show that this tree is right. Because yeah. if there wasn't a DNA match, how do I know this is just because the tree is wrong. Yeah, right. So they checked this tree. They dug out all of the, the documentary evidence to prove that that tree was correct. And that mm -hmm. was really important. And then along the way, they also found this other person. Um, it was a lady called Wendy Dulldig. Dulldig. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Hardly. <Yes>. Hardly. <laughs> and so we found this woman and we, there's a there's a mobile number. And I said, look, I, you know, he had to go to a meeting. I was like, look, I'll go back to my office and I will grab a coffee and I will call her. Mm. So I called this lovely lady up and I have to start with the whole, hi, I'm Tariq King and I'm from the University of Leicester. And we've been doing this excavation and we think we might have found the remains of Richard III. And, and we need relatives, people who are related in a particular way to be able to do the genetic analysis and and we think you're one of them. And her response was, am I on the radio? <laughs> Is this a great call? So it was very sweet. She thought it was a joke. And, and so course. I had to talk her through. And then she talked to Kevin and she very kindly agreed to take a, a DNA sample. I mean, that has actually been a really important part of the project because Richard left no known living descendants. Mm. And I get so many people who email me who think they're descended from Richard III. And I have to explain Nobody, to our knowledge, is descended from Richard III. His, his legitimate son died very young. He had two illegitimate children that we know of, both of whom we think died without children. Right. And so he didn't have any living descendants himself. What we're looking at is descendants of his family. Quite, yeah. Of which there, it's been estimated there'll be between 1 and 17 million people alive today who are descended from Richard's immediate family. That's what happens. It is. It's amazing how quickly we all become related to each other. Of course. And, mm. and that's something which I get a lot of people contact me and they want to know if they're related to Richard III. And I have to explain, we're all related to Richard III. We're <laughs> yes. all related to each other. Yeah. And frankly, if you've got broadly British ancestry, the chances of you not being descended from people like Edward III, for example, mm. is minuscule. Yes. I mean, you will be. <laughs> the other thing, obviously, is I wanted to try doing the male line, so Y chromosomes. So that has on it the gene for maleness, essentially, putting it really simply. Mm. So men have it. They pass it down just to their sons, and it goes down through the male line. And so we traced male line relatives of Richard III, which isn't hard. You use Burke's peerage. Right, yeah. And we had five living male line descendants of, of a chap called Henry Somerset. So he's the fifth Duke of Beaufort. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at their Y chromosomes, and I'm expecting them to have identical or near identical Y chromosomes, and that should match the skeleton if it's Richard. Except for I knew there might be one possible problem, and that's because my PhD had been on the link between surnames, which come down through the male line, mm. Y chromosome, which comes down the male line. So the, the PhD was around, is everyone alive today with the same surname? Are they all descended from an original Mr. Smith or Attenborough or whatever, mm -hmm. who lived several hundred years ago? If so, they should all have the same Y chromosome type. But we knew that wasn't going to be the case because you get what's known as false paternities. So mm. it's where the biological father's not the recorded father. And that yes. happens, obviously, about 1% to 2% per generation. So I knew going into this that while the mitochondrial DNA was showing a lovely match 
with the skeleton, with our living relatives. With the male line, I knew there was a possibility that that would not be the case because there's 19 mm. generations between Richard III and Henry Somerset, who's the common ancestor of these five. And one of them may well be a cuckold. Well, and one of them was, you know, of the five. Ah. So it was interesting because I was expecting the five to have identical or near identical Y chromosome types, and one of them didn't. So I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> fine. So I, my thing in my back of my mind is, even though I've been really, really careful, have I done a sample mix-up? Have I done something wrong here? Mm. And let's go and just talk to the family and, and and just see if there's anything. So we went to see them, and and it was it was Kevin and I, and we thought let's let's go and and see them and see if we can talk to them about it. And when we went to go and see him, it was actually at his mum's house. So we thought, oh goodness, are we about to let the cat? The my bag God. Here. Yes, it's oh. all right if it's your great 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 granddad was cuckolded. Yeah. But if it's your dad. Then that's a different kettle of fish. <laughs> exactly. Particularly yeah. with his mother there. I know. Yeah. <gasps> oh, so so we went to go and see him and said, look, you don't match the other four. Um, there's a couple of possibilities here. One could be I've done a sample mix-up, and would you mind giving me another DNA sample? I just want to make sure. The other possibility is that there's been a false paternity in your family tree. And it went quiet and we're kind of oh and then mom suddenly goes you know there always was this story that so-and-so was not actually the son of so-and-so several generations back right so they'd known about it they just hadn't mentioned anything but it was like Mm. oh my goodness one of the more nerve-wracking things to do on the project it's so difficult and it's something that that comes up in dna family secrets all of the time we have very complex families everybody does yeah and dna sometimes turns that up And this happened in that case. So the other four, they match each other, but they don't match Richard. But I'm not worried because we know there's 19 generations in there. That's plenty of time for the recorded father not to be the actual biological father. And it was interesting because when we published the paper, we did say, look, this happens. If it's in particular parts of this tree it could have an impact for the historical monarchy. So say, for example, it happens between Edward III and you know Richard III's dad, who's also Edward IV's dad. So that's the Yorkist Plantagenet kings. Mm-hmm. If it's anywhere in there, should they have been on the throne? If it's anywhere between, say, Edward III and John of Gaunt, then you start to affect Lancastrian Plantagenet kings. Should they have been <laughs> on the throne? This kind of thing. So it's something that we publish saying, this is really interesting. Could it affect the Tudors? Because two generations between Edward III down to John of Gaunt and John Beaufort, you start to get down to the Tudors. Could they have been affected? So when we publish the paper, we go, well, this is interesting. We have no idea where it's happened. It's clearly happened somewhere. It could have been more than once. But if it's in certain parts of the family tree, that's interesting in terms of it could have had implications for the historical monarchy. Mm. So the paper goes out. I'm deeply proud because it has taken two years of really intensive work. I've lost two stone during the course of it because <laughs> of just stupidly long hours in the lab. And it's been, you know, a real... Real labor of love working with some of the most amazing people on it and really, you know, solid science. And it goes out. And the main thing the press were interested in was, should Queen Elizabeth be on the throne? Ah, yes. (laughs) And I I had to spend a huge amount of time going back up, back up, back. We have no idea where this happened. No, it's Elsie Tabard from Birmingham. We worked it out. She's the one. That's right. (laughs) Bring her in. So it's it was this the crown doesn't pass down that way. So Henry Tudor right. is from a line that is dis, that's banned from ever taking the throne. So he's taken the throne by force, mm-hmm. and then the crown passes down, and it you know it takes detours and it has to go to cousins and all that kind of stuff. So it's not 
you know, a straight line. So it was just a really interesting thing to see what the press really picked up on yes, <laughs> was that. <yeah. laughs> well, the other side of it is all rather complicated, isn't it, as we've heard. But um, but absolutely fascinating and quite extraordinary thing to do. What is brilliant about it is you go back to the very beginning of you talking about it and you saying, all of us said, this won't happen. Yeah. We all started this project with almost certain confidence that it wouldn't work. And I think that really that is the joy of science. The brilliant thing about science is almost always you looking to see something fail and then yes. that will show something else. That's right. And that that's true of DNA fingerprinting. This was not what Alec was looking for. You know, he's trying to trace the inheritance of, of disease genes down through families mm. and he happens upon this. When we started the excavation, none of us, oh, nobody and none of us, we did not think we would find him. And then to find him and then have all of this expertise in place, I mean, that's the really lovely, lovely thing about this project. No one person could have done it on its own. It's a huge multidisciplinary project involving expertise from so many different areas, all coming together to work on this project and make it a positive one. And I have to say, standing there on the 4th of February 2013, which was when we did the press conference, and it was wonderful, really such a wonderful project involving so many people from so many different universities, within the university, outside the university, people nothing to do with the university. So people who've just got a deep interest in Richard III, more than enough glory to go around because of just the little bits that everybody has brought to it. And isn't that wonderful? I just thought it was such a wonderful thing to be involved in. It is wonderful. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well done. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations to all of you, because it's a, it's a most extraordinary thing. It makes you realise that as time goes on, these things may well become more common. Mm. Be able to, to, to say, well, I can find out exactly where everybody is. You know, I can do it because I can trace people's movements. I can do everything. I mean, a, an enormous amount of work that you have to do in order to make that happen now eventually will be almost a computer program. Well, so it's really interesting just how many documents are now becoming online. And this is something which mm. I use for, for DNA family secrets. People can do research from their home, from their armchair. And it makes my life much easier doing DNA family secrets these days <laughs> now, <laughs> do, doing this, this kind of thing, just because all of that information is out there and being digitized. Yes. Marvellous. Okay, I think it's possibly the most exciting thing anybody's put in a time capsule, the Richard III project. Well done. Certainly has been for me one of the best things I have ever been involved with. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, that's two things we put in, Terry. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we have to pause here for some adverts still. Hold on, hold on, hold on. The only way is... Well, I can't fly, so forwards, obviously. Back in a minute... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back. Right, let's waste no more time and find out what else Professor Turi King would like to have in her time capsule. So do you say Turi or Turi? Well, I don't know, you know, it's Norwegian. Norwegian, right. So I am named after a woman called Turi Vidro. Right, Turi, yeah. Yeah, so she is a Norwegian woman. My parents found the name in a newspaper because she was the first woman pilot to fly a jetliner in Norway. So they thought, oh, that's a nice name. And (laughs) I ended up... With it. And it's interesting because a few years ago, just after my PhD, I was doing a project where I'm looking at people in the north of England with surnames that are known to be in areas where the Vikings got to. Mm -hmm. And can you find the legacy of the Viking migration in their DNA? Can you still see that now? So for that, what you need to do is you need to go to Norway and you need to sample men in Norway with long history in Mm -hmm. Norway. So I was in Norway and the people I was staying with were going, you know, your name is Norwegian. I said, yes, no, I'm, I'm, I'm named after a Norwegian lady. And I explained the story and they said, she lives three doors down from us. No. (laughs) I know. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm named after this rather fantastic trailblazing woman called Terry Vidro. So something always to live up to, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe slightly prescient that you were called King. Oh, that has been the biggest. <laughs> so and bless him, my dad, he's so lovely. So he found this website and it's a, a chap who belongs, he believes in nominative determinism. Right. So what your name is determines what you become. And on this website, this chap has got people like William Headline, who works for a newspaper. <laughs> you know, he's got a chap called Jim Cardinal Sin, who becomes a bishop. You've got all of these names, but I'm his his poster girl. So Turi King to re King, the fact that we gave Richard back his. <laughs> his <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Maybe drunk. So, <laughs> Fantastic. Turi, let's put that in and let's move on to number three. So number three is DNA Family Secrets. Mm. So this is the television series that I do on BBC Two. Well, the whole world's jealous that you work with Stacey Dooley. That's that's. I know. It. Oh, she's she's amazing. Mm. Oh, she is so lovely. And the number one question that I get asked is, "She's really lovely on TV. Is she really like that? She's really like that. <laughs> she's so down to earth and so kind. Mm. It's a really lovely program because one of the things that really pervades through all of it is it's behind the scenes as well. The production team, just the loveliest kindest people you could meet. We kind of all fall in love with our contributors because we get to know them. Of course. And we're we're a little bit unusual in that I, there are other programs who do similar things, but my understanding is, is what they do is they start with a lot of people and then they only whittle down and show the ones that 
work or that they want to show. We don't do that. We actually start with a very small pool of people, mm. choose those ones, and then we follow them all the way through even if we can't answer their question completely for them. And that's about showing the reality of DNA testing, about yeah. what you can do and what you can't do. And sometimes it's a case of people will come to us and they would like to know, for example, who their biological father is. Mm. And we can't do it at the moment because there's not the people on the databases. We are completely at the mercy of who's already done a DNA test, who's already there, what information we can find out. Can we build family trees? Can we start to work out who this person is? And we always say to them, look, we might not be able to do this now, but give it six months, a year, two years. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the television program helps us with that. So for example, we had Richard in series one who had quite a, a complicated story in that he, he finds out through taking a DNA test that his sister is not his full sister. He's then contacted by somebody through Facebook who says, I think you might be my son and you've got a half-brother. So we test the two people and they're not related. And so they looked really similar. We all thought, oh, for sure, this is it. <laughs> but they weren't. And it was like, oh, my goodness. But then not being able to say exactly who the biological father was because it could have been one of five sons. Mm. And we've been writing to the families and they don't believe it. They think it's a hoax yeah. or they throw it in the bin. And then what happens is they watch the television program. They realize, oh, no, it is real. This is, what, this, this is real. And so they come, you know, people came forward and they test. And that happened with Matthew from series two in that we couldn't tell him who his father was. He, he was told as a foster child, his his mom, he knew was English. He didn't know anything about his biological father, but he'd been told that he was Jamaican. And when I looked at his DNA, it's like, you are not Jamaican. Your DNA is, it, it was like from all over the world. And when you start to look at where you're getting his matches, who he's matching, it was the Seychelles. Right. Yeah. So when we were telling him, look, you're, you're from the Seychelles, we can't find your dad at the moment, but you know, maybe. Mm. And then just before the program went out, somebody popped up on one of the databases and it was looked like a half-sibling's son. So contacted them. They took a DNA test. We found his half-sibling and oh my goodness, did they look similar. <laughs> and now Matthew and this chap are, have become really, really close. The program goes out and someone goes, you know, he looks just like my cousin. So cousins passed away, test this cousin's sister. And then we find his, who his biological father is. And now uh, he's got this new family that he's been enveloped into. And it can be really, really moving. Mm. And you feel that. When I sit with people, when they come to the program, they sit down in front of me and you can feel these sort of waves of longing coming off of them because it can be people who are, they're adopted. And it's this deep longing you can feel mm. coming off of them. They're in tears. I'm in tears. Yeah. The production team's in tears. It's so much about somebody's identity and who they are and family. It's really deep. Mm. And so to be able to then hopefully answer people's questions, sometimes it's really, really difficult. Sometimes you get in contact with somebody and say, we think that you are somebody's biological father. And they don't want to know. No. Nope. And for others, it's very different. Yes, quite. They're desperate to know. Mm. And you can completely understand that. Yes. And certainly in series one and two, people would come and go, I have got this in my family. I want to know if I have it mm -hmm. because I've got a child and I want to know if I've passed it on. Yeah. And again, what a brave thing to do. First of all, they're doing it on camera. That bravery to kind of allow somebody along on that journey and to show people that this is what it's like and these are the things that are going through their mind. And then 
to find that sort of information out, again, it's deeply poignant. Mm. We've had people like um, Donor Conceived. They just want to know, is yeah. there anything in my family? And that is something that, you know, with one of the cases, it, it took minutes to find their biological father had to be one of two siblings out of three, you could tell from the DNA. So then you can work out which one it is. And for for this individual, it can often be, I just want to know if there's any medical history yes. in there. But this idea that donors can remain anonymous or people can remain anonymous is out the window. Yeah. I mean, it really is out the window. Mm-hmm. And it works the other way around because I've had you know men contacting me saying, I donated years ago. I never told my wife. And now somebody's turned up on the database who's my biological child. And it's caused ructions in the family yeah. because it's something which was never discussed. And it's something which has implications now for crime, as we were chatting about yeah. earlier. Yeah. So the most famous case is the Golden State Killer case, which is the one in the US. Well, this is where a, a chap who in California in the late 70s and early 80s, there's sort of burglaries, rapes, murders. And years later, they decide to do what we do on DNA Family Secrets, essentially, which is take somebody's DNA and upload it to these databases and look for matches. And then from that, you start to build family trees and you start to put them together and you realize that the perpetrator has to be descended from this couple. So then you start to work down and then you start to realize, okay, it can't, these people are girls. We know the perpetrator is male. We know that it has to be in this area. You can do things like predict somebody's hair and eye color from DNA. And then right. you can go, yeah. that's what they did. They looked at driver's licenses. They went, this person has blue eyes. And they managed to home in on this chap called Joseph D'Angelo, who had committed these crimes decades earlier. And it means that you can go back to these cold cases now mm-hmm. and you can solve these things. It's not allowed in in this country, but I think it's coming eventually. Yes. In fact, I, I, I really, it, it it's something where, again, it's an ethical process. If you've exhausted all normal lines of inquiry, and this might help, for one thing, using it if for identifying human remains, so John and Jane Doe's, people who you don't know who this is, this could then give somebody back to their family and yeah. give them a decent burial. And in other cases, it can disprove someone's conviction, which I think is just it, as important. Incredible. incredible. And that was actually, so with DNA fingerprinting, the first time it was ever used was was in an immigration case. And, and Alec will tell you to this day, that is the case he is most proud of. Mm. After everything that's happened, it was a case with a, a woman called Christiana. She was from Ghana. She was a nurse here in the NHS, and she's living here with with three of her children. Her son, Andrew, is actually back in Ghana with her estranged husband, comes back into the country, and the home office doesn't believe it's actually her son. Mm. And so even though they'd built this massive case and there's photos and all this kind of stuff, the court still didn't believe it. And so that this family's on knife edge wondering if their son's going to be deported at any moment. You know, mm. this big stuff. And their caseworker, a woman called Shona York, was on the bus one day, and she's reading The Guardian. She looks down and she sees about how DNA fingerprinting can identify an individual, but also show family relationships. And so she contacted Alec, who did this case, who showed that this was her son, reuniting this family in the eyes of the of you know the home office mm-hmm. and stopping him from being deported. I mean, hugely emotional stuff. Yeah. And like I say, to this day, the thing that he is most proud of is that case. And it opened the floodgate for immigration cases. But the second time it was used was was in a case. So we had uh, Enderby and Narborough murders nearby. These are two girls, uh, Don Ashworth and Linda Mann, who were raped and murdered, one in 1983, one in 1986. In the 1986 
murdered. There's a lad who seems to know a little bit of information. He's apparently got learning difficulties. He confesses to one of the crimes, but not the other. And the police investigator, so David Baker at the time, is going, "Ah, modus operandi, we think it's the same person who's done both of these. And approaches Alec and says, can you do the DNA testing on these? And what it shows eventually is that they've got the wrong person in mm-hmm. prison. This is not the person. He's exonerated. And without that DNA evidence, probably would you know still be in jail. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of good news and bad news. They've got the wrong person, but now they've got the, the DNA fingerprint of the killer. So then they did that huge dragnet where they sampled over 5,000 men. Mm-hmm. And the chap who had actually committed the crimes was a chap called Colin Pitchfork, who actually got a mate of his, Ian Kelly, to go and do the test for him. Mm-hmm. Doctored passport, the whole works. Um And then Ian Kelly is then in the park across from Alec's lab and lets slip that he'd given a DNA sample on behalf of Colin. Someone overhears him, goes to the police. And even as Colin is being arrested, he's admitting to the crime. So the first time is not forensics. It's a a family. It's a genetic genealogy case to some extent. It's like we've kind of come full circle. Mm. And then it's used to exonerate somebody. And then it's used as part of the evidence against somebody. So it's this really, I kind of feel like we're almost coming full circle now and that it started with genetic genealogy and then into forensics and then we've had forensics and now genetic genealogy is coming back into forensics again with these investigative genetic genealogy that people do which i think is absolutely fascinating and exactly what we use for dna family secrets but applied to a different purpose what's strange though is that some people are terrified of the idea of genetics because they Mm. they sort of feel that if this person has done something wrong or they are a bad person, shown to have been a bad person in their life, you can inherit that. And it's not what you inherit. You simply inherit no. DNA. And I think that is so, so important. So we know that we are a mixture of our DNA and our environment. Absolutely. So there have been, there's been studies where they've been trying to look at genes that might be associated with aggression and personality. And we know it's super duper complex. So it's not just single genes, it's multiple genes. Mm. I say it's a little bit like an orchestra. So you've got lots and lots of instruments and they all have their kind of part to play. Some might be slightly louder and some might be slightly quieter and they interact with one another. And the thing that starts that interaction is your environment. So if you're brought up in a really loving environment mm-hmm. and you're taught about how you you know regulate your emotions and how you deal with things and this sort of stuff, what you eat, whether or not you exercise, all this kind of stuff has an impact on you and who you are. You you determine who you are. There'll be some things which you, you know, disease genes. So we know, you know, Huntington's disease and this kind of thing. But by and large, you have a big say in who you are. Genetics is not deterministic in that way. No, And I think absolutely. that's really important. In law, you may be arrested for something and then people will give evidence and people will say things. And you are convicted on a jury being beyond reasonable doubt, mm. which means that they can have some doubt. You know, so you can be unsure but still convict someone. So I would much rather have something saying, well, there's your DNA. That's the proof that you were there. And your DNA evidence is never taken in isolation. No. So I think that's the other thing. So with the Richard III project, for example, people go, well, the DNA evidence is the, is the thing that proved it. It's like, well, actually, it was just one strand of evidence in terms of everything. And that's exactly the same. So you could have your DNA on an object. It, it puts you there, but mm-hmm. it doesn't tell you circumstance. No. So that's where, where DNA is an element of this and not the entire picture of things. It's development and, and how things move on over time and the ability of what we can do with DNA these days 
now mm. is just amazing. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, I look forward mm. to many more family secrets. Personally, obviously, because I'm just madly in love with Stacey, but there you are. That's me. <laughs> I get the impression lots of people are, and I can understand that. <laughs> Absolutely understandable. Brilliant. Okay, that's your third thing, Terry. Let's, uh, let's yeah. move on. We've got two left. So Rosebank, which is my grandparents' house on the Isle of Wight. So I grew up in Canada, but we would come across here and we would go and stay in Rosebank on the Isle of Wight. And it was my real introduction, I think, to this country because it was this lovely house. My granddad had chickens in the back garden and wore trousers, you know, up to his nipples type thing and loved his garden and dahlias. And and you could walk down the road to the sea. You could go to the pub and have a look over the sea and, and the Solent. And you could go to the castles there and all that kind of stuff. It was just such a lovely time. I think it was coming over here and, and just, I suppose, my first real introduction to this country. And I think this country is one of the most beautiful, wonderful, friendly countries. And that was something that I really experienced. I think coming back. And when I first started at Cambridge, my grandparents passed away around that time. And I remember it was it was a real kind of thing because up until then, I'd, I was living here and I would go down there and I would go and visit my grandparents mm. because my folks are back in Canada. And it was my kind of home here. And so I think... Yeah, it was just a real introduction to this country. He had an old Morris Minor and, <laughs> and you know, it was that kind of thing. And he used to make his own wine, which would blow your head off. It was just such a lovely introduction to this country. Yes, I think almost if you're going to discover England, you'll certainly discover England almost in the 1950s in the Isle of Wight in places. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's like its own little time capsule, isn't it? Yeah, it was lovely. And, you know, it's all the, and, and you can imagine coming from Canada. So, you know, used to a different countryside, a different, mm-hmm. you know, huge mountains and the ocean. And you come and everything's so compact. I couldn't <laughs> get over the size of fridges. <laughs> and the cars were all so tiny. And, the, and, and it was all sort of, it was sort of cheek by jowl type thing. And I, and it was just. Yeah, it was just a lovely a lovely introduction, I think, to this country. Ah, was. Rosebank. What a name, Rosebank. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately, you all want to stay there. Well, you do. And it was. And there was loads of roses in the garden. Yeah. And it was just lovely. Just a really kind of lovely, idyllic sort of introduction, I think, to this country. Uh, I did an A-level geography project on the Art of White. Did you? Uh, yes, went there for a week and studied the geology of the land. Well, I didn't really. I went there for a week and I sat in a pub. It was really, really good fun. <laughs> and you've got the needles, you've got Alum Bay. Yeah. I remember this big thing about, you know, bringing home these little glass things with all the different coloured sand in. <laughs> and and like I found all the information about them in a book and I wrote it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And sticks of rock. That was the other thing I really remember yes, from quite. this year. So, yeah, no, I think for me, it sort of represents just the beauty of this country. The countryside is amazing. I mean, mm. British countryside is idyllic, mm. really idyllic. Going for walks in the British countryside, you know, stopping at a pub and things like that. It, it really, it doesn't get much better than that. Yes. There's something really charming about countryside that has a limit that you can almost see. Yeah. I like countryside that you can walk out of in a way. Yeah. And there's usually, you know, you're within a few metres of something historically significant, you know, a beautiful church or this kind of thing. Yes. But what did your grandparents do? My granddad was a dispatch writer during the war, and then he worked in engineering. He worked on aircraft, actually. And my grandmum was a stay-at-home mum. They met on the bus, apparently. And that was it. He was smitten. So... Yeah. How lovely. That's so English as well, isn't it? It was. So, yeah, so he worked as a bus conductor for a little while and, and so met her on the bus. And, and I just, yeah, 
It was. It was just a, a lovely sort of really idyllic place to go, particularly when I first got to this country and they were like my family. And I would go down and I would stay and we would wander down to the pub and have a drink or pop to the mm. corner shop and this kind of thing. It was just such a lovely, lovely place. Fantastic. <laughs> so we've got one final thing, Turi, that you want to put in that you'd like to forget. Yes. So in terms of, you know, putting things into a time capsule that you want to remember. I mean, aside from all the usual things where, you know, like kids and husband and family, who mm. I, it's frowned upon to put in time capsules, I'm guessing. <laughs> um, this one was actually, it's like I've had so many embarrassing things happen in my life or so many things where you think, oh, I just never want to think about that again. But I was thinking about it and I thought, actually, I get emails from people all the time who think that they are related to Richard III or they want help <laughs> with their family history or, or mm. whatever. And by and large, I try to help people. But every once in a while, I will get people who email me and they're like, I am descended from Richard III or I some sort of royal collection. <laughs> and I need you to prove it to me using DNA because I kind of want to make a claim. And I would have to explain <laughs> about the DNA doesn't work that way. And I can't, so I can't help. And it's not anything like I'm trying to do anything bad here no. or like I, it's the DNA can't help you in this case because of how DNA is inherited and so on and so forth. And then they kind of start coming back at me, shouting at yeah, me, yeah. all capitals, you are horrible. You're part of a global conspiracy to deny my birthright. And sometimes they get really, really, really unpleasant, mm -hmm. very, very unpleasant. Uh, Sometimes it can be really misogynistic. Sometimes it's just rude hmm. and horrible. And you kind of think, I don't want to help you anymore. So when people first email, I will be, I will always take it at face value value because sometimes people, they, they genuinely want to know, are they related, this kind of thing. And I explain about all this sort of stuff. But then sometimes you get people who are really, it's conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah. They think that you're trying to deny them. I have one chap who very early on, after the Richard III project, used to write to me all in capital letters saying he thought he was descended from Richard III and that Richard III had crowned him as his heir himself. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay. <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> so, you know, you write back with the first one. The first thing is like, I think I'm descended. Oh, well, Richard III. And then sometimes people, they just get very mean and they decide that you're trying to deny them their birthright. And it can really affect your day because they can be really quite horrible on emails. And you kind of think, I've just tried to help you and you've just been really horrible. Mm. <laughs> and you kind of think, it's, it's so unnecessary. So those are the things I kind of think, yeah, it'd be nice to just bury those and forget Very good. those ones. After a while, I just stop replying to them. Yes, no, <laughs> I think that's probably think, the only way to do it. I get people who send me envelopes and it's like they've spat all over them. Put uh, them in an envelope, send them to me. Here's my DNA. That's right. <laughs> and then you're kind of going, I'm not sure what I do with this. And I've had one that just had like a slip of paper in it that just said, if I'm related to Richard III, please ring this number. <laughs> And then I had one relatively recently. <laughs> Somebody who thinks that they are descended from Richard III, and could I please give them a cheque for four million pounds? And then they give me their bank account details, <laughs> and then a follow-up letter saying, "Actually, my relatives' names, bank details would also all like four million pounds because they think they're descended from Richard III." And could you please call me Princess So and So and Princess? <laughs> and it's just—I mean, we laugh. Yeah. Clearly people are unwell and you kind of go, okay, that's fine. It's when people start getting really horrible and rude, then you start going, okay, yeah, no, I'm not, no. not going to deal with that anymore. And those are the ones I would, I'm going to put those in a little capsule and we just bury those We ones, will do. I think. I'll, I'll <laughs> put them in their own compartment. Yeah. We could maybe burn them first and we just put the ashes in. <laughs> Why not? Very good idea. <laughs> oh, brilliant. 
Turi, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. What an extraordinary person you are. And when you say it's all happened by luck, I think like all scientists, and I quote my wife as an example of this, there is great intelligence there, obviously. But it's the work. It's the constant hard work. Yeah. And so congratulations. Well done. That's very kind. Yes, there is no shortage of incredibly hard work mm. that goes into, I mean, all scientists, I think. Yep. But it's also ridiculously rewarding. Mm. I mean, particularly things like DNA Family Secrets. The work that we put into that and to be able to change people's lives like that, huge. I, it's such a privilege. Wonderful. Well, it's been a joy to talk to you. And to you. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Take care then. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Professor Turi King. And that's another episode over, I'm afraid. We do have plenty of others, of course, if you're new to this podcast, with lots of lovely and varied guests. And they're always available for you to listen to. And we have new episodes arriving all the time, so do subscribe and we'll let you know as soon as each of them is ready. Uh, before you go, it would be very pleasing if you'd rate and, on some podcast providers, review this podcast. We've had some lovely reviews, and we do read them all, I promise. And, of course, a number of ratings is very important for the profile of a podcast, apparently. Although, personally, I prefer face-on. Actually, we're pretty face-on on social media. That's me and my time capsule. You can find us both on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Although I'm most active on Twitter, despite the scent of musk. So if you want to get in touch, that's the place. I'm generally very friendly, I promise. The theme tune, playing away in the background, was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music and is available complete on Spotify. You can, of course, listen to this podcast without ads if you subscribe to Acast Plus for just £2.99 a month. In fact, you may be listening to me saying this and have already subscribed. If so, then thanks for your support. This was a cast-off production, a production company that is willing to produce other podcasts if you're thinking of starting one. It was made for Acast to distribute, which they do beautifully, and produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'll leave you with this piece of advice to anyone who still thinks that Boris Johnson was a good Prime Minister. You can fool some of the people all of the time, and all of the people some of the time. But the rest of the time they'll have to make fools of themselves. I wish you a very goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 